Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. Thank you very much, Ian, for taking the time today to join the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. I was at LSE uh, when you gave a presentation on your new book, and I'm very much looking forward to talking to you. It's been a little while now, and you probably have had some feedback on the book and uh, getting your thoughts on uh, key ideas at the heart of that. Maybe a good place to start, Ian, if you could talk a little bit about your background and what your kind of research interests are. Well, it's a long background because I'm getting pretty old now. Uh, it started with me studying economics at Cambridge, which was a really, really political economy. It was a proper economics course then. And that led me um, to, to to Marx and to social policy. Uh, and that combination led to the political economy of the welfare state, a book I wrote a long time ago, which had a particular take on why the welfare state had developed and how... Uh, and how it might proceed. Um, and then after that, I met um, a philosopher friend, Len Doyle, um, and we, we wanted to write together a book on human needs as an alternative sort of evaluative concept, um, which which we did, and that was published in 1991. And, and then I went through um, a, a period of time thinking about well-being more generally um, and a project on well-being in developing countries. By about 10 years ago, I'd realized that what was missing from all this was the environment and planetary limits and sustainability. So I wanted to combine that political economy, human needs, social policy and climate change to try and bring all those things together. That took me about 10 years in the end, and that led to the book, which you were at the launch of. Great, great. Now, human needs, what, what is that about? Why is that important? And why was that such an interesting topic? For you? Well, um, it was important, first of all, because we were concerned um, about uh, relativism, moral relativism and cultural relativism. And the only way out of that seemed to be to have some external objective standpoint, uh, which was concerned with human well-being and human progress. It was a controversial position we took, but um, I think it's been been borne out since, and there's an increasing interest in in universal rights and needs uh, and, and social rights, which are based on on human needs. So it was it was a philosophical theory to begin with, but then when I started to study climate change, I realised it was essential because you you were concerned about the needs of people across across the globe, uh, especially of people in in poor countries. And you were interested in the needs of future generations. And that's something which is only, I think, a theory of need can embrace. Because the alternative to that is the, is the economic theory of, uh, of preference, satisfaction and wants. Uh, and these will always be uh, relative to time and space, and indeed very much sort of manufactured these days. So I, I saw it as a, a central concept for thinking about the well-being of other peoples and future generations. Right. I like to begin also just to get a sense of uh, 
how you see the lay of the land at the moment. What's on your mind in terms of uh, the environmental uh, issues we have at the moment, in terms of inequality, in terms of economic sustainability issues? Are there a couple of things that particularly uh, you're focused on that, that worry you and how much? Well, yeah, there's, there's several. Um, well, we can talk about current climate policies and, and, and so on. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned with inequality always have been and um, inequality uh, on a global scale is still tremendous though some countries like China are catching up on average um, but uh, the inequality is tremendous um, and that poses problems for growth which we can talk about and I'm also concerned about inequality within countries because it's quite possible that climate policies could could worsen those there's no need there's no reason why they should necessarily be progressive. Uh, so inequality is is one big issue, and the other is the breakneck speed of um, of of growth and material use and emissions at the present time. We're doing, we haven't um, we haven't coped with this at all. We haven't turned the upward curve downwards uh, yet. So um, that imposes incredible constraints on uh, normal ways of raising living standards and dealing with social issues, which is which is through economic growth. Uh, economic growth, that's a topic that we're going to uh, yeah. come back to again and again. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes and aims to break the link between natural resources, conflict and corruption. From its first campaign, which shut down the Camer Rouge's illegal logging industry, to Blood Diamonds, anonymous companies, the brutal killings of environmental activists, Global Witness's hard-hitting investigations and tenacious advocacy galvanise global change. Global Witness doesn't just track and expose corruption. It works to transform the systems that allow corruption to flourish. Find out more at globalwitness.org. So this book, Heat, Greed and Human Need, um, now heat, greed and human need, I guess, three different ideas tied together there. And I think uh, that's something that's quite interesting about, very interesting about what your, your work, bringing together the social policy ideas about ecological policy and climate policy, uh, as well as the uh, issues around, as you say, about in inequality. How well do you think um, we are doing in bringing together these different ideas? Yeah, well, I was struck when I got into this field at, at the, the complete absence of any interest in climate change or in environmental limits in the social policy you know, university. It was just extraordinary how, how little attention there was to that. On the other hand, people who studied climate change were rarely interested, it seemed to me, in social well-being and in inequality. The basic root strategy was green growth, um, and that uh, saw a way of combining business as usual with with uh, planetary limits. But there was very little interest there in the distributive effects uh, and in social well-being effects. So that's what this book is trying to, to bring together. Uh, greed is... I see as a sort of metaphor for the driving force of, of, of capitalism and the global economy. That's still the bottom line. What, what is the, you know, what, is, what are the profits to be gained? Um, uh, a need uh, I saw as an alternative um, value system, uh, 
which is there in part in social policy uh, in our countries today. The National Health Service and Education and so forth embraces a different value system. So, but could, could we then tie that together with the threat of heat the, the, um, and climate change um, to come up with some synthetic policy which would address all these issues? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you talk about in the book, you talk about questions um, of uh, uh, eco-social policies and those kind of ideas. Um, now, you've studied as you closely the development of the welfare state, and um, which is, uh, has been under a lot of pressure um, in, many, in many ways uh, over recent decades, uh, culminating in, certainly in the UK, in a just disastrous uh, austerity uh, policies over, over, over many years. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what an eco-social policy would look like and why, why you think that's uh, an important element, something that we should be thinking about? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I said, yes, the, the, the welfare states have been attacked, um, cut, um, farmed out, contracted out, privatized, all the rest of it. But it still continues. In, in an important way. So we have a, a large area of social protection, uh, cash benefits, and we have services in kind, collective services. So we should recognize that and defend them, uh, but they, they continue. Even in the States, they've not managed to privatize um, you know, the, the social insurance system. Um, but uh, it's nowhere near enough, and it depends on growth, basically, to finance it. So... Um, and, and then you have this, the growth of climate change and climate mitigation policies. And they, they do exist. And we could talk a bit about uh, how, how Britain has, has developed these through the Climate Change Act and so forth. But there's very little attention to the social and the um, egalitarian impacts. The usual method that's considered by economists who consider it at all is to compensate losers. So you have climate policies, you have uh, impacts on communities and individuals, and then you compact, compensate those communities and individuals. But that is very, very difficult to do, and in fact rarely occurs. There are some people talking about a just transition, some unions, and I think that's, that's a good way forward. So my idea was we had to uh, there are these two policy areas in separate silos, climate policies, social policies. We have to bring them together in what I call uh, eco-social policies. And then I come up with some examples of the way you could do this. You could have um, uh, social uh, pricing of utilities, social tariffs, so that um, people on lower incomes pay less for these essential energy and water and so forth, uh, and then the, and then the, the price rises. You could have um, you could start thinking about VAT as a way of thinking about necessities uh, and luxuries and consumption, and so you can start to tax these more. You could start to expand. Uh, collective consumption, uh, universal basic services is an idea which is which is discussed at the moment. Uh, you could start uh, to reduce work time so as to to enhance people's life uh, opportunities um, at the same time as you reduce um, the pressures on the planet. These are some examples of, of 
of eco-social policies, which I discuss. Yes, yes. If we just look at the climate policies, and you mentioned the, the, that they're in, in a silo to some extent, doesn't take into account these other questions. What's your sense, at least in the UK, of how that's going and the, the approach and, and the policies as they're evolving? Well, uh, I mean, there were several steps taken back in 2015 when the coalition government was replaced by the Conservative government. And there was no doubt that uh, there were some rollbacks there. Uh, encouragement of fracking, uh, reduction of subsidies for feed-in tariffs, all the rest of it. There was lots of that going on. But the Climate Change Act passed in 2008 was ad- and is being adhered to. They have to meet the budgets, the carbon budgets, which the Act sets down, and which the Climate Change Committee are, are there to monitor. So at present, we're we're still committed to that, and I still think this is an excellent um, way of of proceeding. Um, the, the way the way in which we have successively lower uh, carbon targets in five year periods, leading up to an eighty percent reduction by twenty fifty. That's not enough, but it, it's a it's a good model, and I see that. Um, that in the recent report of Michael Jacobs and the IPPR, which the Archbishop of Canterbury was involved, the last chapter that actually proposes a similar model for other environmental limits like biodiversity and so forth. I think that's um, that's a good idea. How to do this? Um, mitigation policies are many and various, but I think you can divide them into three basic types, groups. One is pricing, carbon pricing, which uh, lots of people think is the be-all and end-all, but it's useful, but it can't do everything. A second area, policy area, is regulation. Everything from fridges to cars to buildings, uh, progressively tighter regulation on the, um, in this case, the emissions, which they... And the third area, is investment. I mean, green green investment, which uh, is, is needed on a huge scale. That's an area which is taking a step back recently. But um, those, I would say, are the three main mitigation strategies at, at present. Yes, yes. And, and what are some of the possible uh, adverse social uh, implications of these? Um, well, uh, they often don't take into account uh, the, the distributive aspect, which is what we were talking about, how this affects particular communities and particular people. The evidence is that carbon pricing tends to uh, hit hardest uh, lower income families. So there's a, there's a direct sort of, a, there's a direct problem there. Yes, yes. But what else did you ask me then? <laughs> Remind me. Um, I'm just interested in the uh, that that relationship. I mean, we're talking about the the, the British climate policies, and just I guess in, in in a silo to some extent by opening that out and looking at that, interacting with other kinds of policies, and particularly you know talking about the redistributive side of things. I mean, how important is that? Are we talking about you know five percent, ten percent? Are you talking about something that that is 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 has will have a significant uh, impact or is it something that's quite marginal or and, and and to what extent are people really looking at those questions i'm i'm not sure how significant i mean i mentioned the case of carbon pricing there um uh, i mean in other respects if we look at the investment side 
uh, here there's clear potential for, for win-win solutions. Uh, you can invest in in um, in carbon proofing uh, housing. You can invest in public transport. You can get people out of cars, electric cars. So there's plen- there's plenty of scope here for uh, for win-win solutions, which um, improve. But but and this is where I ca- uh, I think. One of the novel arguments in the book is, in chapter seven, is that when we look at the consumption side, all that starts to unravel because we're still on an upward uh, consumption sort of trajectory in the West. Uh, And um, we have to start thinking about consumption. Our our terrestrial emissions are coming down year by year because we're farming out um, a lot of production uh, to China and elsewhere. so we need, first of all, we need to start looking at our consumption-based emissions, which are completely disconnected from and disconnecting from the uh, production-based emissions in, in the West. I think uh, in the Britain, there's some, like, something like 80% higher than the terrestrial emissions. So, so then we have to start thinking about consumption. And here I really start uh, to worry that we're, we're not doing... Uh, much at all. There's a tremendous increase in people buying SUVs and huge cars. Uh, more and more people are, f- are flying on many holidays, uh, the, having larger homes and so forth, uh, with more gadgets. So um, when we look at consumption, we move away from the green growth argument. Um, it doesn't look so good at all. Yes, I'd like to come back to that in a moment. You mentioned this question of the win-win and the possibility of green, well, of financing green infrastructure and eye-popping sums of money that people are looking at, trillions of dollars, trillions of pounds to refit this new green infrastructure. Would you not be worried about the terms in which a lot of that finance would be provided? It's not going to be provided by the state or multilateral agencies, at least as currently envisaged. And, you know, we've had some experience here of the private public pu- public private partnerships in the UK and and um you know on what terms I mean it takes you into kind of maybe Naomi Klein territory you know that whole idea of catastrophe capitalism who has the whip hand in providing capital in these kind of situations well uh in, in here for certain and in many countries it is the, the private finance sector uh which is, which is huge and and still pretty uh, unrestrained. Some countries have green uh, public investment banks, or they have sovereign wealth funds, such as Norway. None of that has had any uh, impact in in Britain at at all. There was a a tiny green investment bank uh, set up, and now it's been sold off to to an Australian investor, I think. So not a a shred of that here, but in some Northern European countries there are. So there are models of sovereign wealth funds um, actually, some of the policies that John McDonnell was taught, has been talking about this week so start to move in that direction. There, there are alternatives, but basically this is, is dominated by the private sector at present. Yes. This question of green growth is clearly a, a, um, a very important question. There's been, I, I've spoken to a number of uh, economists, thinkers in the field of degrowth theory and uh, and others who just questioning this. Uh, I don't know, it was a building who said something about, you know, uh, unlimited growth on a finite planet. I had to be an economist or something. The only people who th- yes. think that that's possible. 
Um, yes. Can you? Ch- yeah, either a lunatic or an economist. Yes, lunatic or an economist. Uh, maybe it's the same thing. No. Uh, um, yeah. What's your thought? Can you talk a little bit about this? Because uh, this idea of green growth, and I guess it, it, it does. The question revolves also to some degree around time frames because if we had 20 or 30 years or 40 years to think about these questions or deal with these questions you might come to a different conclusion then you've got three five or you know you need tremendous momentum and to some degree you know you, you need to work with the status quo with the organizations with corporations with you know possibly to think about ways in 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 and creating change and action in the very short term rather than the and i know that's something that you talk about in your in the book as well is about different i think that's quite an interesting way of looking at it is stepwise saying you know we can look at this for a while but it's not going to get us there but i mean yeah can you talk a little bit about that well i know you've uh, you've interviewed uh, tim jackson about these issues my own view is yeah green growth let's let's push it as much as possible basically it means reducing the emissions uh from every unit of output but the reduction required is phenomenal, uh, you know. You and and this is even echoed by um, Nick Stern, for example. Um, you need a three to four percent um, per year reduction in emissions per unit, um, but that's without population growth and without income growth. Once you start factoring those things in, you need a colossal um, decarbonisation plan. Um, whilst we can do that in energy, I don't see any problem there. All of energy can come from the sun. It, it pours down every day. That's not a problem. But that's only one quarter. One quarter is uh, is iron and steel and cement and the basic sort of uh, um, other material production. One quarter is from, from buildings and, um, and so forth. And one quarter is from land and agriculture. So you've got to get all that down as well. So um, I don't believe uh, it, I, I don't believe it can be done, but we should do it, it, it as much as we can and as fast as possible. But if um, since I believe it can't be done, we then have to that, that leads to then to the arguments on degrowth, uh, and there's a, a well worked out theory that we have to um, pre- prevent growth in the rich countries and then degrow it um, in order to deal with this. I recognize the immense political and economic problems of doing that. So I put forward uh, an an intermediate strategy, which I call recomposing consumption. So we we must start thinking about consumption in the West without necessarily referring to growth at this stage. And we must recompose that consumption to reduce pointless luxuries and to improve the production of necessities which uh, enhance well-being to do that i have to return to the theory of of, of need to 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 um to give credence to this this uh, to enable this to happen so we have to start thinking about necessities and luxuries we have to start thinking about distribution how do you do that in a democratic uh, growth oriented society with difficulty the only way I can see is for citizen groups to come together and to start working out what is what is necessary um, and what is a luxury and what level, if you like, is is riches uh, beyond which uh, we we shouldn't we shouldn't go. I don't know if that makes any sense. 
Yes, it's 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 tricky territory, isn't it? Like, one 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 man's luxury is another man's. You know, I don't know really whether they're they're uh, entirely fungible or you know, but but there are there are questions, aren't there, and about uh, people's consumption and you know what you can say about about someone else's consumption that you know to try to judge it in some way i suppose i mean are they discussions that you've had i guess at the beginning when you start to talk about human needs it starts to get into uh quite subjective territory i suppose and and also slightly uh freighted <laughs> oh it does no it's um uh, well, let me start with this uh, estimate of the World Bank. Um, they say this is about SUVs in the United States. There are 46 million drivers of SUVs. If they swap those for ordinary um, European cars, the emissions save would enable all the people on the planet to be supplied with electricity within that emission envelope. Now, that's that's saying something important, I think. Um SUVs are, are not necessary to get around, and whereas electricity, a basic, a modest amount of electricity is, is an absolute essential. On a world scale, we have to start thinking about uh, these issues. But then you come to, uh, within countries, within rich countries, but I, I think this, this conversation uh, has, to, has to start. Um, and, um, yes, yes. Alert Conservation is an alliance of leading environmental researchers and thinkers committed to promoting cutting-edge conservation research and to galvanize public support to solve major, often neglected environmental issues. Alert publishes weekly blog posts as well as frequent press releases and high-impact videos to focus attention on the crucial conservation challenges we are all facing. Head to alert-conservation.org where you can find out more. Yeah, no, it, it raises the question, to what extent can a market deliver this? We live in very highly marketized days. Everything's turned into a market of one kind or another. Are markets inimical to this way of kind of thinking about things? I don't think markets are. Um, I mean, markets need need regulation. I and mean, I've talked about VAT and tax and, and regulation and ways of doing that, which goes on anyway. You know, all our fridges have got much more efficient because of public regulation, a lot of it coming from the EU. So I, I don't think it's markets uh, as such, but the, the driving force of corporations, which is for growth and for, and, and for the finance sector, that, that, is, uh, that is a problem, I think. It's inescapable, really, isn't it? The degree to which the the needs of investors or the desires of investors driving economic growth um, driving corporations to grow that that has is just such a hugely important driver of of, of this whole thing i mean do you follow that uh, every day now there's more and more uh, talk at least about about the momentum about esg about uh investors taking these into account and taking uh climate policies into account and and new new different banks saying they're not going to finance certain kinds of projects and there's quite a lot of 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 momentum there it seems i don't know how 
deep do you think that is? The whole idea of corporations and their fiduciary role to, well, is it questionable? Uh, it's something that's debatable as well, you know, to, to maximise profits. And uh, even though the legitimacy of that idea is in question, the, the, the courts have read it in America, you know, that that is the case. You know, the Delaware Supreme Court and the, 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 calls the shots and that kind of thing. What, what do you think about what's happening there? Is that something you, you, you see at all? Well, I'm not an expert on this area, um, but I'm, I am aware of uh, that um, amongst um, pension companies and investors, there is an awareness of the limited uh, role that oil will play in the future. So you've got stranded assets thinking. You've also got transformative thinking. And um, I'm persuaded, actually, that, the, that, that finance, in a sense, is, is more fungible than our industrial corporations because they have their capital tied up. In, in certain lines of business, whereas in um, the big investors and the pension companies can start thinking creatively about a solar economy and so forth. So there is some the basic growth growth argument, um, and of course we're for or I'm for uh, continuing growth in the developing world uh, because. There's a terrible level of poverty and horrendous um, housing conditions uh, and so forth, which have to be which have to be dealt with. But then in the rich world, we have to start uh, recomposing consumption fast to provide the resources for the developing countries. And then at some stage, I, I do believe we will have to move to a, a post growth scenario. But um, I suppose what I'm it's a bit like these people who argue that they're a growth that you know, let, let's do what we need to do and then whether that results in, in degrowth or green growth will, will come out in the wash, so to speak. I don't think it will come out in the wash, so that that's why I'm saying we have to focus on consumption in the rich world uh, as a transitional strategy. Inescapable conclusion of the way we, you, you're looking at things, the way we're talking about it, is uh, the role of the state. And um, we talk about markets and I suppose free markets, um, whatever that might mean, and, uh, and, and well-regulated markets, you know, not the same thing, are they? Um, and the degree to which the, you know, like, there does seem to be some thinking around about it. Uh, I, I know uh, there's something called the entrepreneurial state. I'm not sure that's the, the best way of describing it, but the idea of a, think, rethinking the role of the state, and uh, certainly as far as taxation is concerned. Can you talk a little bit about that and the political will? Um, that you sense to make that transition or to start thinking about it in a different way? Well, if there's another economic crisis, that will, I think, focus minds. Again, just thinking about Britain, there, there's the IPPR report, there's, a, there's the, the Labour Party conference. I mean, there is a, some move towards uh, rethinking the state's role in economic policy, which, which, you know, there's some positive elements of that. On the other hand, um, the last chapter, I actually look about varieties of capitalism because I don't think capitalism is all of a piece and um, I, I bring together various um, you know findings which is that uh, northern Europe especially has a very different model of capitalism to the United States of America and so I think we do have this this choice here in terms of um, social uh, quality of life and environmental sustainability there's still a there's a big difference so I'm not entirely pessimistic that other forms of capitalism than the, I suppose, you work, the American model um, are emerging, um, which will, will, will embrace a greater role for the state, but also for um, community uh, endeavors of various kinds. Yes, yes. 
I was just thinking that very often in America at the moment, they talk a lot about Venezuela being failed, you know, socialist state, as it were. And if you look at some of the policies of Northern Europe, they would very much fit into what they would describe as socialist as well. And, and they work quite well, really, which is broader social, well. social, you know, market approach. Are there any particular uh, frameworks or particular structures that inspire you that any countries that you think that we can take some lessons from? If you look at the, the findings of, of well-being and of, of, of time, of, of having um, uh, free time, there's, there's a great difference between Europe and America. Uh, I think um, average hours of work in Germany are about 20% lower than in the United States. There's more holidays and so forth. So there's that. And then I was struck by some findings about um, carbon taxation. If you look at all the taxes and work out their carbon content, uh, in, in the United States, the average carbon tax is uh, $3 per ton of carbon. In Northern Europe, it's $60 per ton, um, 20 times higher. But they're both capitalist countries. So I think there there is a scope for a, you know for, for a more social and environmental for more eco state to to emerge within a capitalist framework. So that, that's my optimistic view. Yes, <laughs> yes. But you touched on this topic, which we just t- t- talked about a little bit earlier. This question of carbon pricing, which is an interesting one and uh, not a panacea, as you say. Can you give us your take on that a little bit? Um, as you say, there's there's been various attempts to have uh, markets, or you know, and 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 some of the large corporations apparently have shadow prices and so forth. Common complaint is that the prices have been so low, kind of level needed to really create change and so forth. What's your view? Well, yeah, I mean, I was at a a meeting at the Potsdam Institute on climate change uh, just two weeks ago, and and I was having from aggressive people the the argument that carbon pricing is the only real solution. But we've been trying it now for 20 and 30 years, and it's not happening. The European uh, carbon pricing system is is very weak and um it's it's put forward as a sort of general one size fits all silver bullet solution if we just get carbon prices right it's it's the insouciance with which this is argument which i find extraordinary i mean you know you're talking about 100 200 per ton that involves that's just another way of saying we need to transform our economies so i i i um, yeah, let's have a, let's have effective carbon pricing as long as we look at the distributive impacts, but um, it won't be enough on its own. Yes, yes. Now, I guess a, a related idea, uh, not to the carbon pricing, but at the heart of the this it, it, something you were talking about at the beginning of this kind of question, I guess, of in, intergenerational justice. In, in a sense, is this question of environmental justice as well. And the fact that, you know, it's the developed world that's created, you know, most of the carbon and uh, probably not going to, in, at least over the uh, nearer uh, time frames, be the one to see the, the consequences of that. It's going to be in the global south. And I, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Well, that that is the... That is one, that's the problem with the green growth scenario. And the Paris Agreement was effectively a, a green growth uh, ag- agreement. Um, and there was virtually no mention there of, of inequality on a world scale or of meeting basic human needs, unsatisfied human needs, uh, across 70% of the, of the, of the globe. Um, so in, environmental justice arguments uh, weren't there. And it is very difficult to see how this will emerge. Um, it's, 
to, to, to imagine rich countries agreeing to the degree of transfers which would be required to seriously tackle environmental injustice on a, on a global scale. It's, it's, it's difficult. Yes, yes. Well, you, you studied the, uh, the emergence of the welfare state. I mean, what, are, what lessons are there? I suppose um, this question of, you know, what, what, how, how, what, what stimulates change? And one of them is a crisis and huge crisis and different scales of crisis after the Second World War. This crisis helped generate the you know, Bretton Woods and the, the you know, World Bank and, and things like that and, and the welfare state, clearly. Um, to what extent um, ha- have you scenarios in which this, the, a more you know, eco-social policies or climate, what you call a climate mitigation state might emerge? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. <laughs> I mean, my basic analysis of the welfare state is that it's, it's emerged... Um, from two two forces. One is pressures from below. The the union movement, the socialist movement, the labour movement, uh, communists uh, across the last century brought about uh, vastly improved uh, protection and uh, well the welfare system. That was one factor. The other was reform from above. There's always been um, uh, members of the elite, progressive elites, that have seen. The, the, the crisis and the problems which will emerge from unregulated capitalism and unregulated markets. Keynes, Beveridge, these people. Um, so, uh, uh, and these two things often come together within a, a crisis of the system. Can this, this sort of model be applied on, on a world scale? We're talking then about movements of poor peoples and uh, environmentally affected peoples across the world uh, and movements of enlightened elites across the world to preempt climate chaos. Uh, so I think I think we can learn. We can get some 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 hope from this, especially if um, climate change starts to bite uh, in its actual impacts uh, across the world. Um, then we may see um, some coming together as we as we saw after the second world war but it's 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 a huge scale because we're moving up from the national scale to the <laughs> to the global scale how has the book gone down in terms of the stimulating debate and just the response to some of these ideas because i think that bringing together these uh, you know the, the the welfare side the social side the climate side and and, and that kind of integrative uh, intention is is a powerful one and i'm just <laughs> wondering how, how how that's been for you that's been good uh, i've been I've, I've had several uh, meetings across cities um, and one in Brussels, uh, the European Trade Union Institute. Um, you know, a hundred and more people at all these meetings and a, a fantastic um, discussions afterwards, which go on for an hour or more. Uh, and so that, that's, that's been very encouraging. The book's selling reasonably well, yeah. Well, uh, I, I guess finally, just to ask what you're focusing on, what questions you're looking at at the moment, I'm trying to take it forward in, in various ways. One is to think about um, maximum income, or, or again, maximum consumption levels. Uh, um, Herman Daly uh, argues that you know if you've got a fixed sum and you you want a certain minimum, then you're talking about a maximum somewhere. And uh, one one of the research projects got underway is is to tr- is talking to um, groups of uh, people in London 
citizens, ordinary people, um, with some expert input uh, to see uh, if they can agree on, on how much is too much, how much is too much. Uh, that's one way of, of taking it forward. Others are looking at um, sustainability policies and, and f- yeah, further work on the consumption corridor. Just we did haven't discussed that. Do you want to just maybe explain what you mean by the consumption corridor? Well, that was the argument that uh, we we need a proper minimum level of consumption for a decent life, uh, but then we must think about um, a maximum level of consumption, uh, which doesn't harm other people's and future generations. And um, then that corridor, as we call it, has to go down in its environmental impact over time well that's a fascinating discussion ian thank you so much for your time today and i wish you the very best of success with your ongoing research thanks very much and thanks for some really interesting questions thank you for listening to the sustainability agenda podcast i hope you found it interesting please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on itunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes 